Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. you would turn to Psalm chapter 5 as we continue through a selection of the Psalms. And as you're turning there, we invite any children that will be participating in our children's class to go there to the room at the back. There will be volunteers there to greet you and to instruct you in God's Word uh, there in that context in that class this morning. But again, we are in Psalm 5, Psalm chapter 5. And so let me read our passage for us, and then we will take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help together. Psalm chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather with your people this morning. What a privilege it is for each of us to be here in this room, in this moment. We know that even this was bought by Jesus on the cross for us, that this is a good gift from you to be able to come together and sing together and pray together and hear your word proclaimed together. And so, Father, we're just thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place this morning. We are thankful that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken us to the truth of your word, to understand passages like Psalm 5. And so, Father, we ask for your help. We ask for the work of your spirit to be active in our hearts this morning through the truth of your word, as you have already promised it will be. Father, I pray as I do every week that you would protect me from saying anything wrong about you, from leading anyone astray. Father, I pray that you would use Psalm 5 this morning to challenge our hearts, to convict us of our need to be serious about prayer, to prepare our hearts and minds through prayer on a daily basis as we navigate this world. And so, Father, use your word this morning to bring conviction to our hearts, to change us and mold us and make us more and more like Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every day of your life is a battle for your heart and mind. Now, you may be thinking that sounds like an extreme statement. It sounds like perhaps I'm exaggerating to say that every single day is a battle for your 
heart and mind. But I think scripture bears out that that's simply a true statement. There are many passages we could look at, but just let me mention two in particular. First Peter chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, we've talked about this verse often in this church, it says to us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is active in this world. He desires, both he and his demonic forces, desire to take out those who are following Jesus. Therefore, First Peter says to us, be sober-minded, be clear-headed, be watchful, be on the lookout. Or we have perhaps a more well-known passage in Ephesians chapter 6 that talks about the armor of God. And uh, Ephesians 6 verse 11 tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. He is scheming against us. And that means every day there are forces that we need to be ready to battle against. I don't mean in some kind of overt way. I just mean with our hearts and our minds. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. In fact, Ephesians 6 goes on to tell us that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. Instead, we're fighting against cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6 to us. So Therefore, one of the most important things we can do is recognize this reality, that this is reality, even if we can't see it with our eyes, and wake up every morning ready to set our minds on the things of God, ready to see the world the way God sees it, to see the world clearly the way He wants us to see the world, not the way the world wants us to see the world. And this is exactly the model that David has for us, King David has for us here in Psalm 5. This is the context that he's talking about here. He's waking up in the morning, praying, coming before the Lord, and it seems that he is praying for the purpose of preparing himself to do that very battle, to battle for his heart and his mind, to remind himself in the morning as he prepares for his day to be ready to battle against his enemies and these spiritual forces that are both, in his case, physically against him, but also spiritually against him. You, you see that even there in verses 1 through 3, that this, is, this psalm is a prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groan and give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I love, by the way, the different words that David uses for his prayers here, right? It's consider my, my groaning. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. To you do I pray. In the morning you hear my voice. It's all these different aspects of prayer. Sometimes our prayer is the groaning of our heart. It's simply an emotional groaning to God and crying out to Him. Sometimes it's a cry. Sometimes it's a voice and it's words that are spoken, but God hears it all and he responds to all of it. And this is what David is saying to us as he comes before God, who he recognizes is his king and his God. He is recognizing in verse 2 that this God to whom he is praying is the sovereign king of all things. And so he praised him with every confidence that what he is saying is going to be heard. But notice with me verse 3 in particular. When is David doing this praying? O oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So in the morning he prays and then he watches. So 
So what does that last word of verse 3 mean? What is it that David is watching? Well, I think the main thrust is that David is praying, and then he's going to watch throughout the day as God carries out his good purposes in the world in a way that's consistent with his character. He's going to watch as God carries out the very things David is praying for throughout the remainder of this psalm. In other words, I think David is saying, I'm coming before you, Lord, this morning, preparing my heart and mind to face this day. There are enemies out there. There are wicked people out there, and they want nothing more than to take me out. So I'm declaring my dependence on you this morning. I am reminding myself of the truth of who you are, of your character, your nature, the truth of the scriptures that David had at this point, the Pentateuch that he was to meditate over day and night. He's reminding himself of all of those things. And then he says, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch God be at work in the world in a way that is consistent with his character. So I do just want to pause here for a moment to point out that David is doing this in the morning. He wants to be sure that he's ready to face the world and to see the world the way God sees the world, to proclaim the truth of God in the morning so that his heart and his mind are ready. I do think there is intentionality behind this occurring in the morning. Now, I always want to be cautious as your pastor to, to bind your conscience or to lay down a law or a command on you that the Bible does not. So there's no verse, chapter and verse that commands you to pray in the morning. There's no verse that says thou shalt pray in the morning. But I am here to tell you that Psalm 5 makes clear that a morning time of prayer a morning time of meditation is intended to get your heart and mind in the right place. Look, I, I stand before you as a guilty man, right? The temptation to, before you get out of bed, to pick up your phone and check the news of the day, to check on what's happening in the world, to go down that rabbit hole before you get up and read God's word and pray. But I am telling you what it does to my heart and mind when that occurs and what it does to your heart and mind when that occurs is you are already thinking of the things of the world, you're not doing what David is doing and to prepare his mind before he encounters the things of the world. It's in the morning that he's crying out to God. It's in the morning that he's praying. It's in the morning that he is preparing. And then he is ready to sit back and watch God act. So I would encourage you to follow David's example, to rise in the morning to come before the Lord in prayer, to meditate his word on the morning, to prepare yourself. Because, as I said earlier, every day is a battle for your heart and mind. So the remainder of Psalm 5 is David echoing this prayer of what he wants to meditate on to prepare himself to face the world. And there are five specific truths we're going to see David remembering as we work our way through the remainder of the psalm. So five specific things David wants to remember as we move through verses 4 through 12. Five things about God himself. And here they are. I'll read through them fairly quickly because we do have them on the screen. So number one, God does not delight in the wicked. God does not delight in the wicked. Number two, God rescues the humble. Number three, God directs the paths of his people. Number four, God will judge the wicked. And number five, God protects for the purpose of joyful praise. So let's begin with verses four through six, and let's see this first truth we need to remember about God as we pray to him and we come before him, and that is that God does not delight in the wicked. Look there with me at verse four. 
it says it right there on the page, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Now, the first verse of verse, I'm oh, sorry, the first word of verse four is really important. The word for, which can also be rendered because. So what's the connection that David is making here as he transitions from verse three to verse four, right? He says, I, I pray to you in the morning and I watch because you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So what is the connection between David watching and the truth that God does not delight in wickedness? Well, I think ultimately David is saying to himself, he is reminding himself of who God is and God's character so that he can watch and remember who God is so that he doesn't find himself enticed by the way of the wicked. David doesn't want to be enticed by the way of the wicked. The prosperity of the wicked is a constant temptation, right? We see that throughout the Psalms. We see it throughout the Old Testament. So just for example, Psalm 73 verses 2 and 3. This is what the author of Psalm 73 says. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is the psalmist in Psalm 73 just being honest and saying, I almost stumbled, I almost slipped. When I look around and see how well the wicked appear to be doing in the world, the temptation is to follow in their footsteps, right? Things seem to be sometimes, if not often, things seem to go really well for the wicked. So why not just walk the path that they walk? Why not follow in their footsteps? Well, the truth of verses 4, 5, and 6 are all the reasons that we need not to walk in their footsteps because it's tempting to look out in the world and begin to believe that the wicked are better off, that they often come out on top. I mean, David himself dealt with this multiple times when his enemies rose up against him. There was a season where King David had to flee the royal city and leave while wicked men took over, right? He was out in the wilderness. They were living it up in the, in the palace, the wicked seem to prosper. They seem to be doing really well in that context. David is saying, then, then what am I to do? Do I follow their manipulation? Do I follow their scheming? Because they seem to be being blessed. They seem to be prospering. David says, no, I'm, I'm going to watch. I'm going to pray and I'm going to watch because this is how God relates to the wicked. He knows that it would be a foolish thing to believe that somehow the wicked are better off because though it may seem that way, eternal truth carries far greater weight than temporary appearances. David in verses four through six is simply stating something about who God is. This is what we would call as we move through different aspects of prayer. The first Sunday of every month, we do a prayer of adoration. Well, verses four through six is a prayer of adoration from David about who God is and how he relates to the wicked. It is proclaiming his character and reminding himself. And so what is it that David says about how God relates to the wicked? In what way does God not delight in the wicked? We'll just look there in verses 4, 5, and 6. The evil may not dwell with him. The boastful shall not stand before his eyes. He hates all evildoers. He destroys those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In other words, if you give in to the temptation to walk in the steps of the wicked, it is a foolish and deadly trade. It is a foolish and deadly compromise. To, to walk in the path of the wicked means that God would be against you. You would be cut off 
from dwelling with God. You see that there in the second half, in the, in the second part of verse four, the evil will not dwell with God. And you just reflect on what the psalmist later says in Psalm 84:10: a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather have one day with you, God, than a thousand spent anywhere else. But it's not so for the wicked. They will never set foot in the dwelling place of God. What a foolish trade to make to pursue the ways of the wicked, to give up an eternal dwelling with our creator, God and king of the universe. He goes on to say, if you pursue wicked, rebellious things, you won't be able to stand before the Lord. This is echoing Psalm 1. The wicked will not stand before him. You will not be able to stand before him if you pursue wicked things. Furthermore, furthermore, it says in verse 5 that God hates, he hates all evildoers. And then in the second half of verse 6, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. In other words, if you pursue wickedness, it may be that the world loves you. It may be that the things seem to prosper for you in the world for a season. But at the very same time, it is also true that the creator of the universe will be against you. So we need to pause here for a moment and deal with the theological question that this verse forces us to address because we've all heard the phrase, you could probably say it after me, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But verse 5 says, God hates all evildoers. He abhors the bloodthirsty. It means that he hates people, wicked people. It's what God's word says in Psalm chapter 5, which means if we're going to be faithful to God's word, if we're going to be faithful to what Psalm 5 says, then that theological cliche that God hates the sin but loves the sinner is simply, it simply cannot be reconciled with God's word. It simply is not a biblical statement. You cannot square that with Psalm 5, 5 and 6. So how do we deal with this verse, especially in light of Things like New Testament commands to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. How is it that he can hate evildoers? How is it that he abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful, deceitful men? Now, one of the reasons that theological cliche exists in the first place is because modern, at least modern American Christians, I would say most modern Christians are just simply uncomfortable with the idea that God hates anyone. We just don't like that language. It rubs us the wrong way. But if we're going to be, as I said, if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we have to affirm what God's Word affirms. And what God's Word affirms is that the hatred of God will burn for all eternity with the force of a thousand sons against those who rebel against Him, against those who commit evil and take His glory that is owed to Him for themselves. This is biblical truth. We cannot sugarcoat it for the modern mind. He hates the evildoers. He abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. Now, this does not mean that he is not ready to rescue all who repent of their wickedness and turn to Christ in faith. He stands ready, right? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. The invitation is clear that because of the finished work of Christ, God is ready to receive his enemies and adopt them as his children, right? That is also biblical truth. But we cannot compromise one truth for the sake 
of another. That can only occur. You can only come to Christ. You can only be rescued. You can only be saved from this wrath that all of us in this room fully deserve. That can only happen because this eternal hatred, this wrath of God was poured out on Jesus instead of you. It's not that verses 4, 5, and 6 are not true for us. It's that someone stood in our place and took it for us. And so God poured out his wrath on his son on the cross so that all who trust in Christ do not find themselves in verses 4, 5, and 6. That invitation is open to anyone who comes to Christ in faith. It is through Christ that we have been rescued, redeemed, and adopted. But you see, when we, when we play down how God relates to the wicked, at the very same time, we demean the overwhelming grace that God has shown us. You will not understand the depths of God's grace to you through the finished work of Christ if you do not first understand the depths of wrath that you deserve for your sin. This is what Psalm 5 verses 4 through 6 ought to do for us. We ought to say, if not for the grace of God, this is how God would relate to me. And by the way, the Bible says it was true of you before you came to Christ. Romans tells us that we were his enemies Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. But God has rescued us. God is willing to rescue the humble. And that brings us to this second truth that we need to remember about God. God rescues the humble. Look there with me at verse 7. David says, but I, so there's this contrast already. So this is true of the wicked. Now, but I... But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. The wicked will not dwell with him. The wicked will not dwell with God. But through the abundance of God's steadfast love, David will be able to enter his house. Now, how is David able to do that? How does that take place, right? This is fascinating language here, right? The wicked are destroyed because of their actions. They are boastful. They are evildoers. They tell lies. They are bloodthirsty. They are deceitful. They do things. And because they do things, God's judgment is upon them. Does David then respond to that by saying, but I, through my truth telling and through my righteousness and through my humility, I'm going to be able to enter. Is that what he says? No, David lays no claim to any good thing in himself. What does he say? It is through the abundance of God's steadfast love. That's his only claim. That's the only reason he gives for being able to enter the house of God, for being able to dwell with God, which is why he says he simply bows down in fear of God. That's all he has left to do is to come before him with humility saying, I'm only here because of your steadfast love. Look, David of all people knew that he did not deserve to enter the house of God. It is entirely accurate to say that David, apart from God's grace, was a evil and wicked man. David rebelled against God. It's, it's on display for the whole world to see in the Old Testament. He took a census of God's people and he was specifically not supposed to. So God's judgment came on him because of that. He forced himself upon a woman who was married, and then he had her husband killed. So if anybody belongs in verses 4 through 6, it's David. He's the evildoer. He's the manipulative, deceitful man. But where does he find himself? He finds himself in the house of the Lord because of the abundance of God's steadfast love toward him. It reminds me of the parable Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to pray. And he says, the Pharisee goes up and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. 
I'm not even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Thank you for not making me like all these other people. Pharisee is relying on what he perceives to be his good works and his own righteousness. The tax collector who, on the other hand, goes up to pray, simply pounds his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went down to his house justified instead of the other. The man who simply leans on the steadfast love of the Lord, the man who simply calls on the mercy of God and says, I don't deserve any of this. Be merciful to me. It's only by your steadfast love that I am who I am. You see, it is the humble that the Lord desires. Jesus says he, he came not to heal the healthy, not to bring hope to the healthy, but to the sick. It's those who are, know they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior that Jesus runs after. The ones who call out for mercy. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when we are with God for all eternity because of the finished work of Christ, and we're with him in the new heavens and the new earth, the only claim we will have for why we are there will simply be because of the abundant, steadfast love of the Lord. That will be it. And by the way, the word abundant is not a throwaway word. It's not just the steadfast love of the Lord. It's the abundance of his steadfast love. It's the overflowing, overwhelming, overcoming steadfast love of the Lord that will allow us to dwell with him for all eternity. That's it. It won't be because of any good thing in you, but simply because God has chosen to place his love on you. This is what Ephesians, we referenced earlier, but this is what Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says to us. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich, abundant, right? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when, even when, that's who we were, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that Listen to this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He took you, the one that he hated. He hates evildoers. He abhors the bloodthirsty. He stood against us and he took his enemies and he saved us through the finished work of Christ so that he could for all eternity just pour out his riches of grace on you. This is what he has done for those who will simply humbly come before him and say, I'm here by the grace of God because of the finished work of Christ that stands in my place. I bring no plea of my own good works. God have mercy on me, a sinner. It is through the abundance of his steadfast love that we will one day enter his house. And when he adopts us as his children, he walks with us. And that brings us to this third truth we need to remember in our morning prayers, which is that God directs the path of his people. God directs the path of his people. Look there with me at verses 8 and 9. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So let's just pause there. David is pleading with God to make the path he is to walk clear to him. Show me where you want me to walk. Show me the path you want me to take. 
How am I to navigate in this wicked and evil world, right? That's what he means by because of my enemies. Because my enemies exist, whether they are enemies like David had, actual physical enemies who stood against him, or whether it's the spiritual enemies that we all have, right? The devil scheming against us, these cosmic powers that Ephesians 6 told us about. Because of those enemies, oh Lord, plead with him every morning. Because of my enemies, Lord, please won't you lead me in righteousness? Please won't you make my way straight before me? Why must we pray that? Because our enemies want us to venture off of the path. They want us to pursue the ways of wickedness. It's simply the language of Psalm 1 that Nathaniel so faithfully proclaimed to us last week. It's the language of Psalm 1 on repeat, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Don't let us walk in their path. Don't let us walk in their counsel, Father. Why? Because this is who they are. Verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. This is David praying to God, proclaiming truth, reminding himself, this is the truth about the world. The world intends to deceive us. The world intends to lead us astray. There is no truth in their mouth. Now, that does not mean that non-believers never say true things, right? That's not what I'm saying. It's not what God's word is saying. But it is saying that we need to be aware that they have no ultimate concern for truth. We need to be aware that they are more than happy to speak lies to you to get their way to accomplish their objective. They don't care about you. There's no, they're not truthful people, though it appears at times they are, which is why we have to remind ourselves of these things. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction, right? Their inmost self, it may not appear that way on the outside, But this is biblical truth, right? This is theological truth that we have to remind ourselves of. They want to destroy. Their throat is an open grave. What a disgusting description that is, right? What is an open grave? It is a open pile of decaying, putrid remains. And David says, this is what comes out of their mouth. Destruction, ugliness, putrid And they flatter with their tongue. Satan would love nothing more than to appeal to your pride by the world speaking to you kindly, to flatter you, right? To manipulate you. One of the most clear places we see this on display is at the very beginning of the Bible in the garden. This is what Satan does. His throat is an open grave and he flatters Eve with with his words. He says, don't you want to be like God? He's keeping something good from you, Eve. He doesn't want you to know about good and evil. Don't you want to know about good and evil? Of course you should eat of the tree. That's good for you. It's good for you to have the tree. So just step in and eat of the fruit, Eve. Your life will be so much better if you eat of it. You deserve it. You are worthy of this, Eve. And she falls for his flattery, his deceptive, evil speech. And Adam, who was with her, participates in the rebellion and they eat of the fruit and bring chaos into our world through the fall. Satan has not changed his tactics since day one. He still uses the world to flatter you, to deceive you. And so therefore we must be prepared. We must in the morning before we check our email, before communication starts flooding in, we need to be ready. We need to remind ourselves that this is how the world is bent toward us. The world will speak lies to us. The world will deceive us. The world will flatter us. Instead, we need God to make our paths straight, 
to lead us in his righteousness. We need this, what I think of as divine GPS for the sanctification of our souls, right? right? We need this thing to guide us, to say, let's, let's avoid that pitfall, and let's avoid that trap, right? Let's avoid these areas and take me through this path and keep me away from this deception that the world wants to aim at me. Help me to walk in righteousness and remain on the path that you have laid out before us. So God in his grace and mercy to us is willing to direct our paths. But number four, we must also remember, the fourth truth we must remember is that God will judge the wicked. God will judge the wicked. Look there at verse 10 with me. David says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now this is David making petitions to God based on how David knows God relates to the wicked. And there are many psalms that are like this, where where David is praying for, pleading for, calling out to God to execute justice and wrath on the enemies of God. The theological word for that is a imprecatory psalm. And the reason I mention that and bring it up is because as you go through the psalms, you're going to see this from time to time. These imprecatory psalms, David praying for God to bring his judgment against his enemies, against the wicked people. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of language can be difficult for us to understand because Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And yet here, David is modeling that he prays for judgment to come upon them, for wrath to come upon them. I mean, look at what he says. He says, make them bear their guilt, God. Let them fall by their counsels. Verse 10, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. Right? David here in this context is not praying for God's mercy to come upon these enemies. But yet this is God's word. This is here. It's in our Bibles. It was not wrong for David to pray this. So, so what do we do with these imprecatory psalms as we are also commanded to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? Ultimately, this comes down to, to our need to have a healthy and good desire for God to exercise his justice. We should all desire perfect justice. It's what we should desire. No one wants, like just think in earthly terms, no one wants a judge who sits on his bench and makes decisions about criminals. No one wants a judge who turns a blind eye to criminal behavior and simply winks at it and lets people run free, right? Nobody wants that. We want justice, at least when we're the victims, right? <laughs> we want the justice. And so it is good. It is good a good thing to desire for God's justice to be fulfilled. But what we must do is balance our prayers with the desire for God's justice to be fulfilled and for God to show mercy. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Right? So, so Psalm 5 is not, is not all of Scripture. We have other Scripture. So, so how do we heed Psalm 5 and heed Jesus' words to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Well, I think it's that's where we can pray things like this. Father, we know that you are a just and perfect judge. So we, we pray that you would hold the guilty accountable, that you would not let the wicked prosper and bring further damage to those who have been created in your image. We pray that you would uphold your justice for all eternity against anyone who rebels against you, mars your creation, and steals the glory that you alone deserve. And yet, we also plead with you, to show mercy as you have shown us mercy. 
we plead with you to show grace to those who rebel against you as you have shown us grace. We pray that you would open their blind eyes to the truth and the realities of your gospel. But Father, we acknowledge that if in the end, if in the end they refuse to repent, if they refuse to trust in the finished work of your glorious son, then we plead with you and trust you to hold the guilty accountable and execute your divine justice against them because we know that you are a just God. We ought to love all that God is. We must love his mercy. We must also love his justice. Therefore, when we wake up in the morning, we need to prepare our hearts and minds with these truths so that, so that we can have compassion on those who remain his enemies. One of the descriptions here, one of the things David prays in verse 10 is that they would fall by their own counsels. They would fall by their own counsels. Well, we see this played out in Romans chapter 1. God simply allows those who refuse to accept the clear evidence of him in creation. They refuse to worship him. They rebel against him. And if you read Romans chapter 1, what it says is that God will simply allow them to continue to fall by their own counsels. He will give them over to further sin and then give them over to further sin and then give them over to perversion and then give them over to further rebellion. So one of the evidences of God's wrath at work in our world is when people continue to spiral downward further and further into rebellion. According to Romans 1, that is an act of God's wrath against them. So the world we live in today, all the LGBTQ stuff is Romans 1 playing out before your eyes. It is God's wrath against them that they continue to fall further and further and further into it. And their eyes are blinded and they can't even see the wickedness of what they're doing. And they call wickedness righteousness. And so as we remind ourselves of these things that we've read about in verse 10, it should bring our hearts to compassion, to want to do everything we can to call them out of their wickedness, but also at the very same time to acknowledge that in the end, God must bring his justice to bear. He must judge the wicked if he does not do so, then he ceases to be God. And so once again, this reminds us of what we have been rescued from. We are no better than these people, but because God has poured out this wrath on Jesus, we have escaped the judgment that we all deserve. And this brings us to our final truth that we must remember every day. God protects for the purpose of joyful praise. God protects for the purpose of joyful praise. Look there with me at verses 11 and 12. But, so verse 11, but we have this contrast again. Make those bear their guilt, those who continue to rebel against you. But on the other hand, let those who take refuge in you, those who run to you for grace and mercy, not those who are not wicked, but those who are wicked, but who run to you for refuge and for protection and for safety and for rescue, let those who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. We have so much to rejoice in. We have so many reasons for our hearts to be filled with joy that we are not like the wicked in this passage that, that don't run to him for refuge. Followers of Jesus should be the happiest people in the world. You should be filled with joy, a real joy, a lasting joy. It doesn't mean we, we fake it. It doesn't mean we always have to go around with a big grin on our face. That's not what I'm saying. But we should have a deep, abiding, unshakable joy that should come out in rejoicing and praising God that we have been saved to the finished work of his son. He says, let them rejoice, let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them. 
May all who come to you, God, may all who take refuge in you have your protection over them. Why? What's the end game? What's the result? Look at the last line of verse 11. So that those who love your name may exalt in you. You've been rescued to make much of Jesus. You've been rescued to exalt God. He has rescued you so that you would fill the air with his praises. And even as you do so, you are filled with everlasting, eternal joy. So that's what I mean when I say God protects for the purpose of joyful praise. He doesn't protect us just for the sake of it. No, he does so so that our lives will echo back to him the glory and the praise and the exaltation that he alone deserves so that it's not about us anymore, so that we're not the boastful people of verses 4, 5, and 6. Instead, we are the humble people who give him all the praise that he deserves so that he is the one who is glorified because it is his abundant love that allows us to be where we are in his house for all eternity. God loves it when we are joyful before him. It's how we fight against pride. It's how we fight against boastful attitudes by directing all praise and glory to God himself. He wants us to find our joy and our happiness in him and in him alone. Because, verse 12, he blesses the righteous and he will cover us with favor as with a shield. The transition from being the wicked evildoers that God hates, that God abhors, that he's going to destroy, that cannot dwell with him, to being those in verse 12 that God covers with favor as with the shield is astonishing. And it is only because Jesus stands in our place. It's only because of his righteousness that accrues to our account when we trust in him. It is only because he took all this wrath that we have spoken of on himself in our place. And because of that, God stands ready to cover us with his favor as with the shield. These are things we must remind ourselves of every day as we prepare to face the world. Make this a part of your daily meditation. God does not delight in the wicked. Do not be led astray by them. God will rescue the humble. Let me just humbly come before him. Remove pride from my heart, Father. God directs the paths of his people. Don't let me be led astray by the deception of the wicked. God will judge those wicked people. So let me not walk in their path. And Father, ultimately, we know that you will protect us so that we can return to you the praise that you alone deserve. May that be the theme of our mornings beginning tomorrow. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the grace and mercy that you have shown us in Jesus. Father, we are thankful that you have rescued us from the wrath and the condemnation that we deserve. Father, give us, give us the courage to speak biblical truth, to not be ashamed or bashful of what your word says, that you hate evildoers, you abhor the bloodthirsty, and, and that's us. That would be us if not for Jesus. And so, Father, we do pray for your justice over the world. We pray ultimately that every sin will be dealt with, whether it is on the cross through Jesus Christ or whether it is in hell for all eternity. Father, we ask you to act with justice. But, Father, we also... We also want to pray for our enemies. Father, we pray for the wicked who do not know Jesus. We pray that you would rescue them. We pray that you would bring your gospel to them. We pray that you would use us to be faithful uh, followers of Christ, to proclaim the good news to all who will listen. Father, may that be true of this church. May that be true of us individually. And Father, let us never be ashamed to meditate on the depths of wrath that we deserved 
so that we can be filled with joy because of the overwhelming abundance of love we have been shown as you cover us with favor, as with a shield. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.